and welcome to Tall Tales, a new podcast series presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin in partnership with Molly, Museum of Literature Ireland, where uh, I'm uh, sitting here this morning. Uh, Tall Tales podcast series is perfect for everyone who loves children's books. I'm Shane Hegarty, the author of Boot and Darkmouth, and today I'll be delving into Tall Tales Chapter 2. On the page, the importance of representation in children's books with Adiba Jaigradar, David Stevens, and Sharna Jackson. Hello, everybody. How are you? Hello. Hi. Hello. And we have people in various parts of the world. Before, uh, so I'm going to. I'm uh, before we introduce everybody individually um, with their kind of little CVs. Uh, just going to say, Adiba, you're in Dublin. Whereabouts in Dublin are you today? I'm in Stepaside. Great, great. And Sharna, you're. Uh, you're it, it, from our perspective somewhere quite exotic. <laughs> yeah, it's not exotic <laughs> at all. I'm in Rotterdam. I live there now on a boat. Oh, but that's it sounds pretty uh, pretty exotic to me <laughs> living on a boat in Rotterdam. Yeah, uh, no, it's really not. Uh, so, David, uh, where are you talking to us from today? Um, I'm working from home today, so I'm in Oxford. But the office for Nights of is based in Brixton in London which is where I'm usually based. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, Adiba, if I come to you first, you're in Step Aside, uh, but tell us about your background and uh, your childhood and how it led you into a world of books. So I'm from Bangladesh originally. That's where I was born. And I moved to Ireland when I was 10 years old and I've been living here ever since. Um, and my background in literature is basically just that um, Bangladeshi culture is very filled with literature, storytelling. Um, and so is Irish culture, obviously, because as you know, like you walk down Dublin and there's statues of, you know, writers, bridges named after writers, um, buildings named after writers. Um, so I think um, that's really what kind of wanted it made me want to like tell stories as well and to write stories um, just from seeing that in both the cultures that I grew up in. And your so your uh, debut novel, The Henna Wars, mm-hmm. um, tell us about that. So The Henna Wars, it's about um, a young Bangladeshi Irish teen called Nishat um, and she's Muslim and she's a lesbian. So at the beginning of the book, she comes out to her parents, but they don't really receive it super well. Um, they react with silence. Um, so she's kind of trying to navigate um, the fallout of coming out. And at the same time, um, a childhood friend called Flavia, who is Brazilian and Black, um, she arrives at school and they both decide to do henna for a school business competition. Um, but Nishat is really annoyed because um, Flavia's culture is not henna and she believes that Flavia is appropriating from her. Um, so she's navigating the fact that she has a crush on Flavia, but she is also annoyed at her for culturally appropriating from her. Um, and she's dealing with everything that happened after she came out to her parents. And I should say it's a fantastically written book with actually great I mean, an imme- immediate sense of a character uh, and uh, and sort of great humour in it. And I'm wondering how much of it is a book that you had always wanted to write? Is it a story you've always wanted to write? Um, or is it a story that, that would have developed uh, once you sort of sat down at the keyboard itself? I think a lot of it is a story that I have always wanted to write. Um, actually, the first book I ever tried to write um, when I was 13 and I did NaNoWriMo for the first time. Um, that was basically a story very similar to The Henna Wars because it was also about like um, an Asian teen um, who was Muslim and um, she was queer and she was trying to figure out what that meant. But I found it really difficult to write it at the time because I couldn't give her a happy ending when I wanted to. And I think it just took me becoming an adult and seeing stories like that already being written and trying to figure out what having a happy ending as like a queer Muslim Bangladeshi person means. And um, all of that helped me write the novel eventually. Yeah. And you've dedicated it to queer brown girls. So uh, to an extent, are you also, you know, uh, you're you're writing it perhaps as well to the person that you were when you were younger? Is it is it is it a book? Is it the kind of book that you would have really loved to have had when you were at a certain age? Definitely. I think it would have 
I think it would have changed who I am now if I could have read it when I was a teenager. Um, so I guess it's good that I didn't have it because then I wouldn't be writing this book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely wrote it for like a younger me, but also, you know, all of the people like, or all of the teens like me who are still out there now. Yeah. And so t- tell us, what was your experience growing up in terms of reading? What were you reading and what were you seeing that, that was missing from from what you wanted in books and from the characters you wanted in books? So when I was a teen, um, I read a lot, but I never really read books that were about people like me or people anywhere close to like me. So I think the first book I read by um, a person of color was Knots and Crosses by Mallory Blackman. And that book, I mean, obviously it had like a like it was such a big thing for all of like UK and Irish literature. Um, it had such a big impact and I think it just changed the landscape. But for me personally, it was also, it, it made such a huge impact. Just being able to see um, black characters, characters of color um, on the page and seeing Mallory Blackman as well as a black woman and everything that she was doing. I think that really inspired me and it made me feel like I could actually write people of color as well on the page. But other than Mallory Blackman, And like Melinda Lowe, she was another um, author who I discovered in my late teens. Um, Other than them, I didn't really read any authors of color. Um, I'm sure that they existed at the time, but I couldn't find them in my school library. I couldn't find them in like my local library. My local library at the time was like Slorgan and I couldn't find them there. Um, So my reading was very like white. And uh, and Sharna, um, as the you've written the high rise mysteries, um, but you came to write that book a slightly different way in the sense that you and and we'll talk to David in a few minutes now. But you were approached uh, by Knights of uh, the publishers to to come up with some ideas and to write the book. But at the same time, you had been working with children uh, in your career up to that point. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So before I. Yeah, as you say, was approached by David uh, and change, he, him changing my life. I worked with children and young people, predominantly in arts and culture. And I had lots of different jobs. So I worked at the Tate Gallery for around seven years as the editor of a website for them called Tate Kids. Um, I wrote audio guides for museums in, the, in America. I was a creative director at an app for babies, which was like Netflix with games. So I did loads of things. And I guess that there was a common thread that ran through all of that work, which was um, a question I would ask myself is how can I make arts and culture and publishing accessible and interesting and engaging for diverse and disengaged audiences? So while um, writing a book is is new or newer, um, like the intention with the book and the stories has been the same. It's funny you mentioned and we'll talk about the uh, the stories now in a moment, but you mentioned diversity, but also disengaged, yeah, which is an interesting word. So what do you mean by that? I mean, so in arts and in culture, it, it can be um, incredibly white and incredibly middle class. And for me, it's like, you know, I would love to see just more diversity in arts and culture because it makes it selfishly richer for everybody else. Um, and I think it's important that young people who don't see themselves in those industries are reflected because then it, you know, it offers a, a pathway for them into those industries. And and uh, so tell us about the High Rise Mysteries, because um, you're now Waterstones Children's Book Prize winner, which is fantastic. Congratulations <laughs> to that. Uh, so tell us, uh, tell us the story behind the books. OK, so yeah, High Rise Mysteries features two young sisters, Nick and Norva, who live on an estate in southeast London called the Tri, um, short for the Triangle. And they are basically busybodies. They are nosy girls who love looking out of their window and and making up stories. And they keep notes. Um, they keep what they call the trifiles um, of comings and goings on the estate. And one um, hot summer, they they realise that they haven't seen their art teacher uh, who lives on the estate for a while, for a few days. And there's this smell getting worse and worse and worse. And so they're using their notes and their noses and their noses. They um, go to the bins and they da, 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 find him dead in the bins. And they have to quickly solve the murder because it looks like their dad is quickly going to become implicated and they don't want that. So it becomes a personal mission for them. And 
when you were sitting down to write these characters again what what's in your mind because obviously you're coming at it from a, a point of view where we where you're looking for this representation and presume you're right you want to write a book that perhaps with characters and a story that you're not seeing anywhere else yeah that'd be right yeah that's right so so starting with like the genre of murder mystery i love murder mysteries um my whole life but they tend to happen on very different estates like country estates and i was like okay what if it was more of a council estate like a vertical village instead and instead of people being you know posh and rich what if they were you know working class and less affluent so it was like taking like those codes and conventions from the mystery genre and then transposing it to like a contemporary setting so that's where it started but with the characters it was really important for me to not lean into anything stereotypical about the girls I wanted the girls to be seen as funny brave clever adventurous curious um not just victims um not promiscuous not um you know ridiculous so I was really just thinking of you know any girls that I know <laughs> and, and 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 like imbuing their those kind of characteristics um into into their character development great and and before we move on to David Sharner what were you reading as a child oh so my favorite book as a child was a was a book by an author called Ruth Thomas called The Runaways um and that won um a Guardian Prize I think in 1990 and I think I actually I think I might have stolen it from my library which was like that was the thing I did when I was a kid and it follows two two young kids um they're classmates but they're not friends one one girl Julia and a boy called Nathan and they are in East London um they're not very popular at all and somehow they find ten thousand pounds in an abandoned house and they use it to try and curry favor with their um with their with their classmates, which works for a while, but people you know start getting suspicious. But you know how are you you know how are you buying felt tips and Mars bars for all these people, and then they they're like, oh my gosh, we're gonna um, we're gonna get arrested. So they run away. They run away um, to Brighton and to Taunton, and they think about uh, leaving on a ship. And then reading it back recently, it's like I think actually it super informed my life because I ended up living in Brighton. For a long time, I, I did escape on a ship and now live on a ship. Um, so it's, really, <laughs> it's really strange, like looking back at it and thinking, oh, my God, was this like the blueprint for my life? But, yeah, I loved that book. It was so good. It is so good. Great. And uh, so, uh, David, aren't you um, founder of Nights Of with uh, Amy Fallone? You've you had a, a post on uh, on social media this week where you were, I think I right saying it was the Piccadilly Waterstones, would that be right? Yes, it was. And you were looking in the, you, you had a picture in the window and it. And tell us what you saw in the window and how you felt looking at it. <laughs> um, so Amy Amy was passing, um, my co-founder, um, Piccadilly Waterstones would be the equivalent of maybe Easton's O'Connell Street or Hodges, Fig- Hodges Vigas in Dublin. Um, it's the biggest... Waterstones and kind of that big, massive, um, kind of three-story window display across central London. Um, and she was walking to a meeting, and there's a spotlight on not one but four Knights of Titles in the window, which she sent to the entire team immediately. And I called, and we laughed, we cried, we uh, we were a bit shocked. I'm not gonna lie, it was it was a bit unreal um considering a company's the company's only three years old and it felt impossible looking at that window two and a half three years ago it felt impossible to think that not only would we get a title in there but also the majority of the window would be coming from and the majority of the best sellers that waterstones have at the minute would be uh coming from so many different places and from different smaller publishers as much as it is the big players and that's what, i mean the nights of story has been incredible and in it and it's not okay sorry if you don't mind me saying like you don't david you're white irish you're not coming from a background that might have been <laughs> we come from a very similar cultural background yeah. and i know how blinding that can be yeah. to the realities for so many other um, um people uh, and especially children i i was i, I mean I, I i was raised by 
Irish picture books and Irish picture book authors and the community. Um, I think I kind of came into Poetry Ireland and into Children's Books Ireland when I was in my late teens and essentially grew up surrounded by these incredible emp empathetic writers who were dedicated to storytelling. Um, and like people like Robert Dunbar, um, Larry O'Loughlin, Siobhan Parkinson, um, kind of the, the in inverted commas, the old guard, forgive me, um, of Irish children's books who became almost de facto parents, it, certainly towards my kind of late teens. And that shaped an incredible amount of who I was and what I wanted to do. So when given the opportunity to work within Penguin, it was the, the original aim was to introduce as many Irish voices as possible into commercial, uh, big commercial publishing in the UK and internationally. Um, and then from, from working within Puffin, I joined Brown Bag Films, where I was incredibly lucky to work with the teams there on shows like Henry Hugga Monster and um, Doc McStuffins. And Doc McStuffins particularly influenced what happened next in that the power of representation, seeing what happened when a small black girl on the biggest TV channel in the world impacted this absolute massive wave of doctors across the United States going to schools, black doctors specifically going to uh, schools across the US just to sit in front of kids and say, look, you don't see this and you're seeing it on TV and I want you to know that this is a path that you can follow. And that was separate to the show. It was an entire movement that happened because of the impact it had for those adults seeing a you know, preschool TV show with a black kid playing doctor. So when I moved to, I moved over to London about six years ago um, and joined Scholastic, um, I, I wanted to bring that passion and that will for change to what I did um, as a director at Scholastic. And I, you know, I was put in a, a position of power and I wanted to affect not just the books we were commissioning, but the people we were hiring so that in the room, um, there were as many voices and from as many different perspectives um, so that it wouldn't just be, you know, me as a white man ticking a box and saying, great, I have my black author that I can champion for this this year, um, as opposed to the power of having as many diverse editorial and sales and marketing inputs because how you not it's not just how you publish and what you buy but it's also how you sell it and what you say around it um and we hit a brick wall um when when we went the, in that direction and trying to fix it from the inside was incredibly difficult um and amy and i obviously live a very different experience um but it, it was the same same frustrations Amy living it, um, and I, I, she's not here, so I won't speak to her experiences, but Amy living those thousand small microaggressions and me bluntly, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not shy about coming forward. Um, so me bluntly saying in rooms, you know, why are we being so openly and disgustingly um, racist at times as a company? Um, was met with resistance and met with defensiveness. And, you know, a lot of the conversation, certainly this year, certainly since June this year, has been around that acknowledgement of privilege. And it was just, I, I was I was lucky enough to have seen the power of representation and what it meant for the success, even just as basic as what it meant for the commercial success of projects, if you made it as inclusive as possible and made that inclusion as part of the DNA and not just one character. Um, and essentially, we were angry. We were angry for different reasons, but we were angry. Um, I don't like being told no. Um, and Amy doesn't like being shot on from a height by literally everyone she works with. So we decided without any plan and without any idea of how we'd fund it or how we'd make it, that there had to be a better way to create successful commercial inclusive books where if we started a company that was majority where, where, it was, where essentially I was the token white voice in every room in every meeting then it would lead to more inclusive more diverse books on shelves 
Um, and we, we focused on hiring as the core so that it was in, integral to the DNA of the company. Um, and we used my big blue eyes and Rolodex of Oscar winners and wealthy people across Ireland to to raise the mon raise the funds to launch the company. Um, so that that's been my role in KO. It has been getting it off the ground, stabilizing it so that it's financially sound, and being the trusted face voice in the room. We've been in meetings where people, you know, investors didn't even look or address Amy. They'd only talk to me. Um, and if that was, you know, that was my role at the beginning, my role is, you know, it, it's changing as the company grows. I'm, I, I don't do an awful lot of very public facing stuff anymore. There's no need. There's really, there's no need to hear my voice anymore. We, we kind of let our authors do most of the talking these days. Um, that's your job, Sharna. Um, <laughs> and uh, Sharna, and, and actually when you mentioned Sharna there, Sharna, have you noticed, I mean, apart from your own experience, have you seen a change in the industry over the past? And, I, I, you know, I think you could legitimately kind of trace it back kind of over the past three years of Nights Off. But have you noticed that change, not just within the industry, but also in terms of what children are are, are reading and being uh, given to read? Or yeah, well, yeah, I think so. I think so. David can speak to this, but there was a report um, a few years ago that said that, you know, one percent of main characters in books for children that year were a black or brown character. So you had better chances of uh, identifying with a stick or a dog, which is just a struggle. So, um, you know, Knights of themselves have been like utterly at the forefront of, of, of pushing that change. Um, and I've been very grateful to be part of it. And now I am part of it. It's really uh, heartening to see lots of teachers on Twitter, for example, putting lists together of, books with diverse characters, diverse authors, and yeah, really trying to open up what children are reading in their classrooms. And Adiba, in terms of your own kind of path to publication, how smooth or otherwise was it? I think I've been pretty lucky in that it was pretty smooth once I started um, trying to get an agent or trying to get a book deal. Um, I think I just... I was just, um, I wrote the book at a very good time because it was just after um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, the movie hit Netflix and Crazy Rich Asians had just come out. So everybody was looking for like a diverse rom-com and I'd just written it. Um, so I got an agent very fast. I got a book deal very fast. Um, and I feel very lucky with, you know, what I have. Um, but I think um, a lot of the issues that come with me is that my my publication journey all happened in the US. Um, so, you know, in the UK, um, I'm like, my book still is not out here in the UK and Ireland. Um, hopefully it will be soon, um, we'll see. Um, so I think like when, when I think about um, publishing, I do see like the two sides of it. I see what happens in the US and I see what happens um, here in the UK and Ireland. And I do think there's just dis distinction between what happens in the UK and Ireland, because um, in the UK, we are seeing like the statistics, as Sharna said, and we've seen like a rise in the statistics. But in Ireland, we're still not even doing, you know, we're not getting those statistics. So I don't even know like what percentage of books by POC are being published. Um, as far as I know, like there's literally um, two POC YA writers, and I'm one of them. Yep. Um, and I think the other one is Mary Watson. And possibly there's more, but I don't know. I haven't heard of them. Um, so, you know, that that has kind of been my journey. I do see, like, a lot of different sides to publishing. I think in the U.S., things are very different. Obviously, like, racism um, and the way race operates in the U.S. is very different to how it operates here um, in Europe, but specifically in the U.K. and Ireland. Um and they are, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of us um, in terms of like the percentages. Definitely still a huge amount of work to do, but we have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. And I'm going to do I'm going to do the marketing bit for you now, Adib, because I think you while you're saying the book isn't published here by a by UK or Irish publisher. Am I right in saying I think Raven Books and Blackrock and also um, and the Gutter Bookshop, mm -hmm. they often have stock as well. Yeah. So people can can get it. And I would absolutely recommend it. Um, and, and David, have you the things that that you went into uh, nights of believing would be a challenge? 
how have they compared with the reality of what you've actually experienced and what what do you still find are the challenges or what what have you learned? I'm getting the sense that the things you thought might be a problem were only a tiny percentage of the things that perhaps you did face. I mean, yeah, we we, 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 were, we were a little naive. I'm not going to lie. I thought the hardest part would be financing the company and convincing people to give us. I mean, we, we weren't looking for huge amounts, but we needed, you know, a couple of hundred thousand to start to be able to do this um, to, and to do it as well as we wanted. And that bit I thought was going to take the first best part of a year. Um, and it happened almost immediately. <laughs> and the bit I thought would take the least amount of time was convincing retailers and public or kind of bookshops that inclusive um, fiction for children would be a positive thing. And you know, the, the, the easiest thing to do would be to sell some of the, the, the best the best, most commercial titles we can create through bookshops. And that that was the bit that it, it's taken three years to build that trust with retailers. And I, I did think naively that they'd, they'd accept mine and Amy's history of, of publishing bestsellers as, oh yeah, sure, they know what they're doing. They've published, you know, David O'Doherty, they've published um, Chris Judge. They know exactly what they're doing. This, this should be straightforward. I, you know, I, I did focus the early part of my career on creating space for as many Irish authors as I possibly could. I thought that that track record would mean that I was trusted to go and do this thing. And it's taken three years to get there. Whereas I, I did think that would be the easiest, um, somewhat naively. Um, the other, I mean, there are other parts of it that we weren't quite prepared for. We weren't quite prepared for how defensive parts of publishing would get. Um, it turns out calling an entire industry racist or biased <laughs> or ableist or you know classist doesn't go down well and it doesn't make you a lot of friends. So there were a lot of people at the very beginning who definitely pushed back in ways that we we maybe weren't quite prepared for. And it's certainly, I, I know I've certainly burned bridges extensively over the last two years. And it's really interesting to see a lot of those are being mended very quickly as, you know, when when the commercial side of this starts to work and people see that it's actually making money, we've suddenly, you know, offers of partnerships from places that shunned us or ignored us or outright just called us quacks. And David, what do you find you're getting? What are the submissions that you, that, that you're getting sent? Um, so we work, we have an editorial director, um, Isha, who works with agents um, and kind of tries to to work on that established pipeline, um, you know, working with agents to find and kind of see submissions from them in the more traditional route. But we also, as a company, are committed to lowering the barrier to entry for publish to publishing as much as possible. Um, and that's across the board for hiring as well as for authors. So anyone can approach us. Uh, we have an open door policy in Brixton where anyone can wander in and talk to us. Or um, obviously that's not that's not viable at the minute. We have an open live chat submission box on the website where between in, you know between the hours of nine and five, generally there's someone there live to talk to and who will listen to you sharing what your what your book project is. Um, and it's kind of where we started with Sharna. It's where we started with um, Elle McNichols, A Kind of Spark, um, and Shaping Up Culture, a book we published last year, um, have all come through um, kind of those initial, hi, I'm interested in what you do. Can we work together conversations? And Sharna, do you find, what, what has been the response of readers, especially those readers who see themselves represented in the books that you're writing? Uh, from the readers, it's been really, really positive. Um, I got my first piece of fan mail the other day. Yeah. Which was so, Congratulations. It was so cute and it was so nice. And uh, one of the best parts of, of this new work is being able to visit schools, whether in the physical realm or via Zoom. Um, and it's really, really lovely to see children being enthusiastic and then feedback from their librarians or teachers after I did a I did one this morning and um, the, the librarian tweeted back at me saying, you know, with a quote from a kid saying, you know, I've never spoken to an author before and it's really great and I feel inspired. And so that is lovely because it feels like I am still fulfilling that mission of um, bringing interest to kids and hopefully they can see themselves um, reflected in what I do. And do you think in a way, I mean, we're four adults here talking about it and and I see with my own kids 
that they look at books and they look at characters very differently to how we assess books. And we we can often maybe we, we can label things very easily while like so for my I have a nine year old daughter who's a huge fan of the Planet Omar books and she's fascinated by um by Omar's life within it and she's fascinated by the references to to uh, you know Muslim culture and um uh, but ultimately it's and she will ask questions about it and she will tell me about it and things that she's learned but ultimately it's about the character and the story and the fact that it's a funny adventure and silly kind of daily adventure story with brilliant illustrations and is that ultimately what it should be about for kids that um that they that maybe they're not seeing the same things that perhaps we're seeing as adults even if it has an impact on them and even if subconsciously obviously they might recognize themselves or you know or or more definitively recognize themselves do you think that that maybe you know kids to an extent just want great stories yeah, I think that's the case. And I think that, um, yeah, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, everything should be colorblind and we're all one. No, because I think those cultural differences are really important and and are interesting for everybody to explore and respect and understand and empathize with. But yeah, I think it's about characters and story. Um, and I, I don't know, David can come in here, but I know that Knights of wouldn't, they, they're not in the habit of just publishing stories because they're diverse. The stories still have to be absolutely gripping and interesting um, and compelling. So it's, yeah, it's not about, okay, let's rush and put black and brown stories out in the market because that's trendy. It's about making sure that stories and characters are drawn in really realistic and um, and decent ways. Yeah. And I presume, David, to an extent, to fill in the gaps that, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, Sharon, what you were saying about the idea of a murder mystery on an estate. When 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 you think murder mystery estates, you think in that very old fashioned Agatha Christie way. And yet it it's about it's it's ultimately about playing with an idea and playing with with uh, tropes and preconceptions. And David, is it so when you are looking to publish is, you know, what are the kind of those main criteria for you? Um, I, I guess the one word we keep you are we we at KO keep using is, is that commercial is is the focus. It is it's about publishing a book that we would publish no matter where we were in terms of publisher um and you know what what will work within the market i think well, the one thing with with planet omar which is important is it's we don't yet know the effect um that that will have on a kid in north county dublin reading about a muslim character mm. um instead of you know the alternative being tom gates or diary wimpy kid um and i guess the, the the thing with planet omar as a series was it was published originally as a book called the muslims and everyone felt that was too on the nose and no one read it so in order to make it more palatable and more commercially friendly so that it could reach a nine-year-old girl in North County Dublin. It was, you know, reframed as something more commercial and repackaged and re-illustrated to make it look um, as market-friendly as possible. And I, I think, you know, that is our focus at the minute. It's we're telling every story um, from every possible, or at least trying to tell every story from as many different possible uh, perspectives and voices. Um, and our focus within that space is to do it from as many underrepresented spaces as possible. Um, and it, it's so it's, it's so difficult to quantify because we really don't know what it what the future implications will be outside of I'm and the entire team at KO are emphatically sure that it's going to be incredibly positive um, and can only lead to more stories and more more interest and more excitement around um diversifying how books are made by you know if readers are seeing themselves in stories then maybe they'll consider themselves potentially authors in the future and adiba have you what kind of response have you had um because i would imagine it's it's interesting what you were saying about ireland being very much behind in terms of representation in books and and you know just having 
um, POC authors. So when you go into a school and you meet young readers who see themselves represented in the book, um, is is there something you recognise in them? You know, do you do you almost see them sort of sit up in their chair a little bit? Uh, uh, you know, they see it and sort of you know, is there a spark there that you can you can see has been generated when you meet somebody who sees himself in your books, in your story? Well, I haven't had that experience yet of like going into a school and um, meeting like kids um, in real life. But I've had um, like a lot of messages from people, um, a lot of like DMs, a lot of emails, um, a lot of tweets, um, specifically from like queer Muslims, um, queer brown kids, um, basically saying like this was the first time that they actually saw themselves represented in a book and like how much they related to it and how much it meant to them. And obviously, like, that is really heartening to see. Um, and especially for people who, like, they will say to me that, you know, they can't be openly out to their family or they haven't even come out to their friends. And the fact that, you know, they can share a little piece of themselves with me um, in, like, a private space or whatever, like, I think that is a great privilege um, that, uh, like, I, I'm really honored that people feel like they can share that with me. Um, so the response overall has been um, really, really great. Um, and I hope, like, when I do get the chance to go into schools and into Irish schools, um, where I do think, like, I think in Ireland, we have so much diversity um, currently, even when I was in school. Um, so I think I graduated in like 2011 from secondary school. Um, even then in my school, there was a lot of diversity. Um, there were like a lot of um, POC Muslim girls that graduated with me. Um, so I do think like our schools are very, very diverse. But unfortunately, our um, literature does not reflect um, reflect the kids that are going to school right now. And do you do you think that perhaps there are other um, areas of culture where we've got it a little where it's a little bit better? Perhaps it's more organically grown. So I'm thinking of music in particular, where there are, um, you can see the change in Irish popular music at the moment. You can see the diversity in terms of of acts that are coming through and what um, you know kids are listening to at the moment. And I know that from my own teenager at home. Maybe it's a slightly easier thing in terms of music because people can can DIY that and stick it up on Spotify. But do you think there are there are areas of culture, especially within Ireland, that we can we can learn from that are ahead of us and uh, ahead of literature and which, uh, you know, are, are kind of sending us a message? I think. Um, I think there probably is. So I don't personally follow like um, Irish music, so I can't speak specifically about that. Um, but I do know that, um, for example, Poetry Ireland have been um, trying to do a lot um, to diversify. And I do commend them um, because I know that, you know, they put together like a group of people who um, they consulted about how they can actually diversify um, poetry in Ireland. And I do see that there are more um, poets of color who are getting published and who are getting support. And so I, I have a lot of respect for Poetry Ireland for what they're doing. And I think that, you know, other fields of literature in Ireland can definitely take a page from their book and they can um, do a lot more um, in order to bolster support. Um, I think there is an issue where um, there isn't a lot of support coming from um, adults in Ireland, because obviously that is where the money is. Um, so I did one event in Ireland um, before my book came out and before everything started with COVID. And there was, it, it was a like a diverse event. It was for like International Mother Language Day. Um, so almost every single person in the room was brown or black. And there was one a white Irish man and I think you know you can guess what I'm going to say because he was the person who put up his hand and he said, I don't think there's a problem with diversity in Ireland. I think that you could get published here. You could get an agent here. No problem. Like, I think you're just, you know, like, it's great you have a U.S. agent, but you wouldn't have, have had an issue getting an agent here, even though, you know, I was, I was speaking about my own experiences. So I do think, like, that is where a lot of the pushback comes from. And that's what, like, we need to deal with. Yeah, and it'd be great when you get a chance to go into schools. Now, hopefully, I know it'll be a little while, but um, hopefully you will be able to. And I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see, Sharna, have you had, because I think it's different in the UK, your experience of going into schools, but what response do you get from the adults? And, and, and I suppose because so many parents and adults are buyers of children's books, um, you know, what, what's been the response 
there um, and, and I suppose if I'm being frank about it is there a, is there are there preconceptions that perhaps especially you know the people who are used to you know uh, buying the straightforward kind of uh, you know white um, middle class stories that you've been talking about maybe grew up with those stories is there any uh, is, is there you know there uh, frankly kind of any sometimes a little pushback against what you're writing or any reluctance to buy it um, well, so, so teachers and parents that I've met who have read it are really, they really like it. Um, and lots of comments have been about the, the mystery and that the mystery is actually very solid and good, uh, which is nice because it's a murder mystery. It's not just yeah. kids messing around on an estate. So that's really good. I mean, the only, I'm sure that David and the team at KO keep it a lot away from me. That's our job. But there was one, yeah, <laughs> that is a job. There was one incident just as it was published, as Hard Mystery was published in 2019, where um, a Twitter troll got hold of a news article about it, which then um, there was a, like a day of trolling and a day oh. of racism activity. Um, but ultimately that resulted in more sales yeah. that day. <laughs> so it was like, you know, you can be petty. And it was kind of like, you know, well, why don't you... Uh, go back to your own country and write stories there. And it's like, well, I was born in England. I was born in Lewin. Um, <laughs> I don't know which country you're referring that I go back to. Um, and it's like, if you don't like it, write your own book. It's like, that's literally what, what we've done. <laughs> it, was it was a very odd day. Um, we can laugh at it now. It was terrible. It wasn't, yeah, we weren't laughing at the time. And police yeah. police secure, but, uh, security checks were, were essential for about a week and a half. <laughs> and and Sharon, you're based in the Netherlands. There is there any difference between and again, are there lessons that can that can be learned from the Netherlands? How is it there at the moment in terms of representation in in children's books? Honestly, I don't. I'm not um, in the kind of uh, publishing world here at all. I kind of just hide out here and try and write stories. Um, but once lockdown is over, I'm absolutely more um, inclined to be investigating that. I've had an invitation to do a school visit here, which is really exciting. Um, so I'm keen to do that to start working out what it's like here. I think what I've read about the Netherlands is they're kind of mirroring what Deba was saying. It's like, no, wait, there's no racism here. It's fine. It's fine. You're, don't be silly. Don't 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 be like that. And it's like, well, yeah, you don't know what we mean. So listen and talk a bit less and would you find because actually Adiba you mentioned how strong Bangladeshi storytelling culture is like one of the things that always strikes me and again having grown up in Ireland um, you know you're reading uh, largely books that have been written either by Irish authors actually for a long time as a child you didn't really even have a huge amount of children's authors Irish authors certainly when I was growing up in the 80s um, but it was UK authors or it was American authors do you do you think there would be great value in, in, and I know commercially it can be a little bit more difficult, but in having more translated works and stories from uh, elsewhere that are that are percolating through our very English language dominated culture? I, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, just because I was talking about like Bangladeshi literature, um, we have like a famous Nobel laureate, you know, Rabindranath Tagore, um, who I'm sure you have all heard of. He's he was a very famous Bengali writer. Um, and I think that really speaks to like the history of literature that we have in Bengali culture. Um, like even in Bangladesh, one of our biggest events every year is um, a book fair that we have. And it's a month long book fair um, where basically there's stalls selling books, there's authors doing visits. Um, and like, again, that speaks to like the, the culture of literature that exists in Bangladesh. And it speaks to the amount of books that are produced in Bangladesh that are by Bangladeshi authors written in Bengali, um, but they're not, you know, making their way over here to English. Um, so I do wonder, you know, how much we are missing out on just because we don't get books that are translated. And I think even with translated books, I think a lot of people don't want to read them. Um, like people don't really understand that translation is an art. They think that they're going to miss out um, on what the original book is. So they'd rather just not read it at all. But, you know, there can be good translators. There can be bad translators. Um, and there's I've read, read like wonderful translations and terrible translations. Um, 
So I definitely think we need to invest more in translating because there is a lot of privilege um, in like me speaking now because, you know, even though I'm a Bangladeshi author, I grew up in the West and I like I know English. I'm writing in English, but there are so many people who are like me, but they did not grow up in the West and they can't write in English and we are missing out on their voice. And so uh, as we get towards the end of this conversation, uh, Adiba, what would you love to see change more in the next few years? What would you love to see more of in children's literature? I think I would like to see just more of an investment into diversity um, and like every kind of diversity and specifically in intersectional books. So I think now a lot of the time we get, for example, a book by a South Asian author um, and we don't see all the intersections of their identity because, you know, South Asian person, they can be disabled, um, they can have mental illness, um, they can be fat, um, they can be biracial, you know, all of these things. And we don't really see a lot of books like that. Um, So I would love to see more intersectionality. Um, I would like to see specifically investment in diverse books by diverse authors, so own voices books, because I think... um, A lot of the times when we talk about diversity, we tend to push diverse authors out and we actually accept diverse books by non-diverse authors. And I think we need to invest in the authors more than the books themselves, because they are the ones who are the most important. And so what's uh, what's next for you? You have a new book coming out. Is that right? Yeah, I have a new book coming out March 2021 called Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating. And it's just about these two Bengali girls who um, have to fake date each other in order to get what they want. Great. <laughs> Good luck. And how far into that? Have you, are you still editing or is it all ready to go or? Um, I'm just doing the past pages. Um, so yeah, it's basically, it's basically ready to go. Great, great. Uh, David, then what's what are you looking for over the next few years? Because I know um, we didn't get a chance to mention it, but obviously the pandemic and the lockdown, you know, it was a difficult time for nights of. um, But at the same time, you know, financially, but at the same time, you found yourself in the um, in the middle of a campaign that turned out to be enormously successful (laughs) and showed, but also showed how much value and I don't mean that simply in a monetary sense but how much you know uh, value people place on the work that you and other independent publishers are doing at the moment so you know you've you've that uh, before actually just talk about what you have coming up that that experience must have been hugely heartening um yes and no I'm slightly cynical about it um I think April and May this year Amy and I were having conversations around, you know, what does what does the future of K look KO look like, and if we have to dissolve it, what does that look like? Um, and we launched the Inclusive Indies campaign to try and raise money to keep our doors open and some of our partner um, similar independent presses open, um, with so much uncertainty around what sales were going to look like as bookshops across Ireland and the UK closed. Um, and I think that campaign ran for three weeks through May when, you know, it was it was essentially friends and family who were supporting it. And I think we raised about 15 or 16,000 um, pounds. And then with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter um, in the US and, and that noise that happened, um, there was a, a rush within the UK specifically and specifically England to to point to something that they could do that was on their home home turf to say, we are supporting what's happening in the US and we're supporting specifically black authors and black presses. Um, and we were in the you know right place at the right time. We, 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 I think we tweeted something on a Sunday evening that went viral. And within the 48 hours after that tweet, the, the campaign had gone from 16,000 pounds to nearly 160,000 um, pounds. And, you know, what we've done with that has been you know, obviously, um, I think 50,000 of it came to KO in order to kind of ensure our stability going forward. And 50 similarly went to our partners, but the rest is being disseminated to independent presses across Ireland and the UK. And we were you know, lucky enough to be able to write checks a couple of weeks ago to Irish presses and UK presses, including Little Island, to you know, give them cash to focus as much as purely as possible on increasing the diversity and inclusion 
of their own lists, but also, you know, if they needed to pay their rent that month, then that is, that's what they use the money for. Um, and that's, yeah, it, it is heartening to know that there is support and understanding for what we do, but it tends to come only in those moments when, it, outside of just a support of the work on a day-to-day -day basis, it needs a national campaign. It needs, it needs to be fueled by anger. I've yet to run or see any of these funding campaigns that we have run to be to be done by just sheer support and not coming from a place of outrage or upset or hurt or defensiveness. Um, so, so I'm sorry for the cynical nature of this. That's okay. Um, I should really just be like, <laughs> I should be really thankful for the fact that, you know, we, we raised 160 grand, but um, I think we raised 160 grand from guilt rather than okay, from yeah, genuine, yeah. genuine looking to support it. That said, then... KO has had the most incredibly successful sales year that we've ever had. Obviously, Sharna winning the Waterstones Prize has been huge. Hmm. Um, and, you know, our focus is to continue pushing forward on sales. And um, we've got so many good books coming next year. I cannot wait to tell you. But um, that'll be another conversation. And Sharna then, uh, so... Apart from, um, you know, running around with your Waterstones prize, uh, you know, kind of uh, enjoying that moment and, uh, you know, and all that it's brought and and, uh, and it is a fantastic thing. I mean, it is. It, and it, it's um, as a prize, it, we know that it does enormous work in pushing books forward. Um, what's uh, and Mic Drop is your most recent uh, book. What's next for you? Uh, well, so I... Um... I'm writing some things. Um, I've, got, I've got loads of ideas, but the hard part is writing them down. So I'm, I've got that. I'm working on that. But I've, this whole time, I've had a full-time job. Um, so I'm actually leaving that and winding that down. So I'm now just, you know, working on, like, new ideas for High Rise 3 and... Um, yeah, I'm also I'm doing like lots of different kinds of writing as well. I'm working on um, a video game, oh. which is quite interesting and exciting. But yeah, just trying to uh, um, mold my life into um, a nice, a nice quiet life where I'm able to actually write. Fantastic. Well, uh, continued <laughs> success with it. It's been um, fantastic. The books are are brilliant and they're uh, the the all the the sales and the prizes are are well deserved um and adiba best of luck with everything down the line and david too stay uh stay motivated keep those great blue eyes going david but uh you know and keep the cynicism fueling you for as long <laughs> as you can <laughs> but um but uh congratulations to to all three of you and hopefully it'd be interesting to come back and have this conversation in another three years I think and and it would be fascinating to know where it is because certainly you know I, I certainly as somebody who's a writer and and you know working with publishers I've seen the difference I have seen the difference it's made but I'm also I also see it as a reader and I see it as a parent and um, it, it uh, you know is making the world a better place so um, best of luck and continued congratulations to everybody uh, so thank you very much to my guests today, Adiba Jagardar, David Stevens, and Sharna Jackson. Uh, in our next chapter of Tall Tales, we'll be speaking to Chris Riddell about poems and books to save the world. Uh, but thanks for listening today and thanks to our sponsors, the International Literature Festival Dublin, which is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council. Goodbye. Goodbye.